Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. September is here, and the mocking cast is too. I think it's been a, you know a few months, and yeah. judging by some of our uh, you know technical difficulties we've had in figuring out how to record today, we're a little rusty. So, uh, listeners, please be even extra forgiving as we sort of jump back on the horse. But what's going on? What did you do with your summer vacation? Sarah, have you done anything this summer? You've had a very... (laughs) We moved, and we're still in process of moving. Like, I literally had to text Josh and be like, where's my new mic? And he's like, I think it's on the floor in the guest room. Um, Yeah, everything's just kind of crazy. But uh, we really love Nashville. We really love St. B's. I mean, I feel like, and RJ, you know this because you've done it recently. Like, you can do all the interview process you want. But everybody's kind of showing their best selves, including you. And like, you don't know. The honeymoon phase. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even like when you get there, you're like, I don't know how this is going to land, you know? And it's just felt like Mm. such a like perfect with all the human flaws that come with it, but perfect fit. So that's been like a real relief because it's just such a risk of love for a church to call somebody and a risk of love for somebody to like leave a church and go to a different one. So that's been really good. Yeah, it's been really good. I do want to say um, I'm coughing quite a bit still. You guys know this, but I got diagnosed with pretty severe asthma kind of all of a sudden. So I'm hoping that's going to be better by the next time we record, but <laughs> it's kind of present for me. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sarah. That's, okay. that's a bit... You have to give I... up smoking. Yeah. You know, I know, And I, and right? I know they, how you love it. When I take, took the test, they were like, they asked me three times if I smoked. And I was like, do I tell them when I was 14 and at the water park? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. At like, the water that, park. Yeah. That detail. So, anyway, you just lost yeah. your health insurance, Sarah. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> right? Just like, it's gone. That's They're it. all <laughs> listening. They're listening it's all gone. at all times. They're listening at all times. So, yeah. Well, for those of who, who are slightly unaware, when we say St. B's, it's St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in Nashville. Yeah. And I, I know there's, look, we have quite a few people in Nashville that are listening. Go check out that place. Oh if, my I were, God. if I were there, Absolutely. I mean, I totally. love, I have, we have lots of friends who Blow are doing ministry in that uh, section yeah. of town. But hey, a new regime always needs some fresh encouragement, I think. That would be so, that's so cool. I'm so glad to hear it's going well because you're right. There are times when you get there and you think, well, this is not as advertised. Right, or, exactly. Yeah, totally. Or you're like, this is amazing. Yeah, this is even yeah. better than they, you guys, why didn't you guys say, put this in the brochure? Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. Yeah. Uh, they didn't know who they were dealing with. Well, I'm so, how are, and, and the kids in new schools and all that, how's that kids going? Kids are in new schools. One kid is in a whole new school today after having started a new school two weeks ago. So, um, yeah, so we're living on the edge. So if you feel crazy right now as a mom who's super anxious about your kids, just remember, I'm a little crazier. <laughs> wow. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Just do all the change at once. Don't wait. Just, just all the change. Do not hesitate. Yeah. Just, yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, I did no drop like her off present. this morning and she's totally my kid who would never do this, but she's like, 
I can do whatever I want today. It's my last day at this school. And I was like, oh my gosh, do something big. She won't, but. Burn it down. I know. <laughs> wow. So. If I have to hear the phrase, kids are resilient one more time, though, I, oh, think, I, I hate I it. I hate die. it. I mean, I get it. Uh, I get yes. it. They are resilient. I have, I have two kids starting, two of my yeah. three are starting new, I've just started new schools and, you know, praise God, it's gone, it's gone well. It's gone better than expected. Yeah. And yes, yeah. they are resilient, but. Dude, they're not resilient. Like I've been dying to write this piece. They're not resilient. They're just future therapy patients. Like we just tell ourselves that because we want to feel okay about whatever havoc we're wreaking in their lives. Like they're not resilient. They're not like they're still human beings. Like I hate hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not a Rutger, license to abuse them. <laughs> speaking of a, a you know a pinnacle of resilience, R.J. Heyman, how are you doing? <laughs> Ageless as ever. Okay. Mental, spiritual know. fortitude, Rutger Jan Heyman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Today, this week, I'm doing well. Uh, we're adjusting to our own new normal of having only one child at home, which is a weird thing. The last time we only had one child at home, I was. 28 years old and we almost had another one coming but now i'm 47 and marshall our six-year-old is going to be an only child for the next 11 or 12 years but it's actually going really well he's settling into school our two older boys are just so happy like it's jackson's senior year he's got amazing friends he loves school spencer just started at rice a couple weeks ago he loves it i have to say sarah rice did a better job of welcoming him than any school I've ever seen or heard about. It was just crazy. You They're know, they very just, good at that. They knew his name. They knew what he liked. They yeah. loved him. You know, it was just so wonderful. Glad. So he's good. really happy. He does have COVID right now because apparently half the student body has COVID, but that, Rice doesn't like, really care. It's like, go to bed and see us in yeah. a few days. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of over. But we're good. I think, you know, honestly, my wife was, Jamie was in a bit of mourning. You know, for a, she's yeah. probably still mourning a little bit. It's tough to see your kids go away and have them grow up and just so many emotions, you know, joy and pride and sadness and anticipation and just all these, all these things. So a lot of emotions. But yeah, in general, we're doing really well uh, and heading into another year and excited, but also kind of overwhelmed about church stuff, as I think everyone this time of year, right, is feeling a little overwhelmed no matter what they do for a living yeah but yeah generally um we're doing good and dave how are you <laughs> well i'm a little a little like sarah i mean although we we didn't move towns we did move houses it was uh i think i talked Moving about it before worst. we left but you know since we last recorded this i feel like my whole life's been sort of you know transferred uh you know 15 minutes down the road and it's been you know it's all the things they say it's you know, exciting, it's fresh, but it's also a massive hassle to move and to do all of that. And we're, we're kind of on the exciting side of it now, finally. Good. But I'd say, like, we moved on July 4th. It dominated my summer completely. Yeah. But, and, you know, mainly, frankly, for me, it was a lot of the anxiety about the kids starting new schools, one of whom is happy-go-lucky as can be, and the other is just the opposite of that, whatever you would call that. Yeah. And so living kind of in anticipation of that for all of us in the house, it just kind of, you know, you know, settled over the house, but I can honestly, and we also have two, two of our kids' birthdays in, in one week at the end of the summer, which is always like, you know, after you've made them move and they're going to new schools, then you have to kind of overcompensate, shall we say, yeah. on birthdays. Yeah. And so that's just happened. But, you know, I, we're pinching ourselves that we, we that it happened, that we did it, and it seems to be working out so far. And uh, yeah, lots to 
give thanks for. We we spent some time at the beach. We got to go to our, you know, favorite place up in North Michigan, um, which is just such a wonderful summer destination. Camp Arcadia is really another another really stellar time there. And uh, yeah, there's a like RJ, like you, Sarah, there's just so much happening. I feel like um, as my kids enter like the teenage years to the amount of like Buckle pra- up. practices <laughs> that we're that we're ferrying people to just feels like it oh, takes, takes over insane. your life. Did you, I sent you that comedian who was like, it's, you're basically an Amazon driver and your packages hate you. Like that's, <laughs> that's, so, that's so accurate. Like Neil came home, Neil who has stuff every day because he signs up for everything, came home yesterday. He's like, I'm joining percussion club. And I'm like, why? Like, what are we? Or, but I'm like, why I'm not? Okay. I yeah. mean, we're Do doing it. the trumpet. Best life. We're doing percussion. Yeah. Yes. So anyway. Yeah. Marshall's doing four different sports this fall. But luckily, they're all five minutes away, so that's not that's so bad. Yeah. Look, Marshall's at that age. You just—you're the one who said it. You just got to run them. So. Yeah, just run that's them. right. It's South Florida. It's like the sports capital of the world. So you yeah. know, scholarship. Here we come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, this first piece we're going to talk about is all about travel and vacation. This came out in the middle of the summer as a contrarian bit of writing in The New Yorker, Agnes Collard, who we've talked about before. She is a philosopher in Chicago, and she wrote something called The Case Against Travel. Now, I felt implicated, to be honest with you, but here's what she has to say. There's some things that are very interesting. She said, what is the most uninformative statement that people are inclined to make about themselves? My nominee would be, quote, I love to travel. This tells you very little about a person because nearly everyone likes to travel, and yet people say it because for some reason they pride themselves both on having traveled and on the fact that they look forward to doing so. Travel gets branded as an achievement. See interesting places, have interesting experiences, become interesting people. But is that really what it is? She quotes a a definition from a classic academic volume on uh, tourism saying, a tourist is a temporarily leisured person who voluntarily visits a place away from home for the purpose of experiencing a change. That last phrase is crucial for the sake of change, but what exactly gets changed? Then she talks about going to Paris and saying, like, during my Paris wanderings, I would stare at people, intently inspecting their clothing, their demeanor, their interactions. I was trying to see the Frenchness in the French people around me. This is not a way to make friends. And she talks about travel actually not as being a very good way of connecting with other human beings because you're sort of, it's slightly dehumanizing. G.K. Chesterton talked about how you, it, travel makes you into a spectator, like you kind of view people as, as sort of objects in a zoo almost. But then she gets to her real problem with travel. And what she's really, the real problem she has is with tourism, I think. She said, a vacation is not like immigrating to a foreign country or matriculating at a university or starting a new job or falling in love. We embark on those pursuits with the trepidation of one who enters a tunnel not knowing who she will be when she walks out. The travel departs confident that she will come back with the same basic interests, political beliefs, and living arrangements. Travel is a boomerang. It drops you right where you started. And if you think this doesn't apply to you, cast your mind on any friends who set off on their summer adventures. In what condition do you expect to find them when they return? They may speak of their travel as though it was a transformative or once-in-a-lifetime, but will you be able to notice a difference in their behavior, their beliefs, or moral compass? Will there be any difference at all? Travel is fun, so it is not mysterious that we like it. What is mysterious is why we imbue it with a vast significance, an aura of virtue. 
one is forced to conclude that maybe it isn't so easy to do nothing. Imagine how your life would look if you discovered that you would never again travel. If you aren't planning a major life change, the prospect looms terrifyingly as, quote, more and more of this and then I die. Travel splits this expanse of time into the chunk that happens before the trip and the chunk that happens after it, obscuring from view the certainty of annihilation. I, Dave, are you Boo. okay? Like, I feel like that just made me sad to hear out loud. I can't, for the three listeners who are still with us, we're grateful for y'all. I just want to say that, that from the outset. This made a also, lot of people were talking about this all summer. Terrible. I thought I was a bummer at cocktail parties. Like, I'm just like, this lady We can is... show you the vineyards of Tuscany, but we can't heal your marriage. Like, what was the Adam Sandler set of yeah, last skit? I, totally. Yeah. Also, she's never been to Dollywood, clearly. Like... <laughs> I come back different. I, I, you know, like I'm just, this is like so sad. Also like tourism is like what keeps a lot of places going. Like, I don't know. I'm just, who is this? Like, is she okay? Is this well, a business check moment? For read, yeah. read up on her. She's got a lot. <laughs> she might not be okay. I don't know. I know that she, a lot of people saw this and thought it was worth talking about. All of her articles, I would say, do get you to think and they get you these contrarian views that are sort of like, huh. If you are traveling to change you, I mean, that is what that great SNL thing that you're quoting, Romano Torres yeah. with Adam Sandler. <laughs> so I mean, that's what, if, if, if somehow travel is there to solve your problems yeah. or to turn you into a different person, then it will fail miserably. But I, I think she sort of undersells the idea of travel just as diversion and people are interesting and places are beautiful and um, just enjoying the beauty of it. She takes issue with the fact that people go and they go to all these museums and they never go to a museum in their hometown. And so... How does she know that they don't go to museums in their hometown? <laughs> Sarah's having none of this. Well, tell, tell us more. I don't more. like it. Mm -hmm. No, I just... I think travel is like... like it changed, It's changed our family in some ways. Like, it's where we've learned some of, like, our, our best lessons. Like, I was thinking about how we were on this, like, horrific poorly planned by me ferry boat at like two o'clock in the morning when we were going into Canada and I hadn't planned things well. And we, the kids wanted, the kids were at each other and we came up with the lamest game ever called the food game where mm -hmm. you, two teams, you come up with a food and then you just ask as many questions, yes or no, before you guess the food, right? That's literally the whole game. That's a good We've game. been playing it now for six years. We like, we play it all the time. Like we love it. Like, I just am like, does she not have children? Like this is, it's such a beautiful way to grow as a family. You know, I mean, RJ's kids have learned how to launch themselves off rocks. Yeah, there's like, lots of cliff jumping. She doesn't, she clearly hasn't done any cliff jumping. <laughs> Dollywood and cliff That's jumping is, is her, her I mean, issue. like. Yeah, like, oh my gosh, Sarah, 100%. Like we still talk about on one of our amazing road trips through like the Rockies when we lived in Texas, we stayed at this little state park in New Mexico called Elephant Butte. And we were awoken at like 6.30 in the morning by a hippie in a van, like playing like Enya music extremely loudly. And we always talk about like, remember elephant yes. butt, remember <laughs> elephant butt, you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, Jamie saw some study a while ago that was sort of measuring adult happiness and saying that a big factor in adult happiness is how you remember your childhood. And a big mm -hmm. factor in how you remember your childhood are the memories you make. And so many of the memories you make are on vacation, right? Like mm -hmm. I don't, I don't go on vacation to get to know the people there. No. I go on vacation to get to know my family. Yeah. And those road trips we took, where for like two weeks we were either all in one car or one tent or one hotel room, 
And then we'd get home and everyone would re retreat to their corners of the house. Yeah. And you're like, where is everybody? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I miss that. I miss that closeness. I miss those memories. And that's the thing she said at the end about, this is just, this is where Christianity, we're, we're going to depart, that we can't handle annihilation and that we're nothing and we're going nowhere wrong yeah. no yeah like death is the ultimate travel experience you know that like, is true we go, we go to heaven to spend eternity doing amazing things in amazing places yeah. with the people we love oh and also if i stay home all i do is worry about my work or like see the hedges that need to be trimmed yeah. or the room that needs to be or painted or the Cheetos. Yeah, yeah. Like it, there's, you, you need to be shaken out of your yeah. routine every so often and go to somewhere where your phone is not ringing off the hook and you are not engaged in the, the relentless to-do list of day-to-day -day existence, you know? So like, I am just, this poor woman. Like, I, think I just this don't is great. even know what this, to say. Well, hey, sometimes it's fun to read an article that gets you guys going. This is, yeah. I would <laughs> say that does. like, I feel the same way. I think like we realized that we travel was something we did well as a family, you know, and that we should do more of it because we, we enjoy each other more when we're on, yes. rather than when we're sort of in our separate corners and stuff like that. I also think, I mean, I was just thinking about this summer feeling like just the need, that need occasionally just to get out of Dodge and a change of scenery that is, is yes, probably a little bit of trying to escape oneself, you know? Duh, who but, doesn't want to do that? But it's, uh, I, I just can't help but think of sort of just the sort of being absorbed in the beauty and novelty of the world and uh, on its offer Sarah di uh, posted this thing the other day of a coming a performance of a band called Nuns and Moses mm -hmm. which is like a Sarah I'm going to butcher this but what I saw what it what it looked like to me yeah. was a Guns and Roses cover band where one the guitarist is dressed as Moses the whole time and there's a revolving <laughs> door of of nuns impersonating it's Axel it's Rose ro rotating axles is yeah, yeah is and I, I thought to myself I would I would my original thought was like you know this is this is beautiful like the fact that human beings are capable of this at least in from what from my perspective and the stuff that i like i'm like the fact that this is out there makes me excited to wake up tomorrow morning right you know? <laughs> totally i was like this is like yeah i mean i just it i already i do like the empathy for her because it, it is like it's this feels like a really sad way to like, kind do, of... Do you not have any friends? Like you're going somewhere else and you think you're going to make big friends on your... Like maybe by some happy miracle you will meet somebody and that sounds incredible. But like that's not... What? Well, she, she was know. taking issue with the idea that you go to a place and there's a few things you have to do. People feel like... There, there's true. Like you go to the Paris and you have to go to the Louvre, etc. And yet you don't actually have an interest in art. You feel like it's something you have to do and you're sort of checking the box. Maybe I'm speaking from, this, you know, the ivory tower here, but that's... I don't know that many people that tra actually travel that way like yeah. it's you know i, I do I, are you kidding me god I'm forbid like you try something 10, new <laughs> top 10 things to do in kentucky you know like i'm on that list i'm totally. knocking them off like i yes. just you know i keep thinking about this summer which again hellacious moving and we i did that i made that fatal mistake where i was like oh you know the kids have had camps all summer we're just gonna chill the last week we had just moved in here. No. We were going to kill each other. <laughs> and I looked at Josh and I said, I'm taking these kids to Dollywood. And he was like, 
sounds good. I mean, he had to work. And so we went, we sat by the pool, we did Dollywood because they're not little from the morning to the evening. And it was such, and both my kids were like by the pool because (laughs) the pool is called a swimming hole and the drinks are called moonshine. So yes, we did. Thank you. And although it is like a beautiful resort, that's the language they use. I ate fried green tomatoes three times. We had the best time. And the kids were like, thank you. Like, they were literally like, thank you for getting us out of there. Like, we needed this. And mm. I just, I don't know. I, I wonder I wonder how she wakes up in the morning. You know? well, it, 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 it did get a lot of pushback, as you can imagine, from people yeah. that look forward to traveling. I was thinking about it, though, is that there are there is a certain breed of people that you know, even though they have the means to travel, they like to do what's called a staycation. I personally don't have the capability of it. I, I can't, like, I need to sort of be removed from my surroundings. And maybe that's my own limitations or my own imagination. Is It just gets too overwhelmed by work or something. But, like, I need a change of scenery in order to kind of unwind. And the, But I talk to people who can do a staycation, you know, sabbatical or something like that. Or, oh, hell no. I, I always think to myself, that's a kind of a level of sanctification or spiritual enlightenment that I just don't have. Like, yeah. have you ever, can you do a staycation? Have you ever done one? No, I think those people are lying. What about you? <laughs> I, I can only do it if I have people that I love coming to visit me. That's you know, true. like, like Jonathan Adams That's and true. his family yeah. will come down here and he's great. Cause we'll, you know, we'll take a boat out. We'll go play golf. We'll hang yeah. out. You know, like if people are coming, cause this actually is a, this is, I live in a place where people come for vacation, sure. which I often forget because I'm so in my own head, but then someone else comes and they want to do fun stuff. And I was like, yeah, sure. sure. That, then I, then yes. But otherwise, if it's just our family, no, because we just do our thing and we're on our phones and like, we don't connect. And you know what I mean? Like as a family, we got to kind of go somewhere. We haven't even mentioned the sort of spiritual idea of a pilgrimage, which I think there is something to that. Not just because I've spent years, you know, jealous of Jacob Smith's walking of the Camino every, it seems like every other day. It makes me so, um, <laughs> I'm dying to do that one day. Uh, Jacob, we love you. Let's now move- get back to work. Now get, now get back to work. <laughs> Stop walking. Let's move on to something else. This is from Sam Bush. This is on Mockingbird. It appeared sort of a, a, actually a month and a half ago called Timing is Everything, The Ethics of Being Late. Now, Sam had watched a new Mike Birbiglia comedy special. And uh, if you guys know Birbiglia, he's very uh, funny. Sam writes, in comedian Mike Birbiglia's world, there are two types of people, those who are on time and those who are late. While he prides himself as being an on-time person, Birbiglia bemoans the fact that he married a member of the opposition. Quote, it's an issue, he admits. If they're heading out the door and his wife asks him to wait for her, he can't help but feel more allegiance to his on-time comrades. And then he says, what late people don't understand about us on-time people is that we hate you. (laughs) (laughs) The reason why we hate you is because it's so easy to be on time. All one needs to do to be on time, he argues, is to be early. In other words, one must have a more accurate understanding of reality. It will take you longer to get ready than you think. There will probably be traffic, and you probably will not catch every green light. And perhaps the humility also to realize that the world does not revolve around your airtight schedule. Sam goes on, he says, If blessed are those who never make another person wait, woe to those who show up late. To the perpetually charty, the law of timeliness heaps accusation with every tick of the second hand. To be running late is both to regret the past, I should have left more cushion time, or dread the future, everyone is going to be mad at me. 
The relationship between on-time people and late people is proportional to the Pharisee and the publican. Like every other law in the hands of sinners, the righteousness or unrighteousness of promptness becomes an enemy of love. One need only observe the next time a coworker is five minutes behind for a staff meeting. There will be no sauntering, no triumphal entry. Rather, he will slink in, head bent low, tail between his legs, before mouthing a silent, sorry, while the rest of the room raises their eyebrows in mild indignation. Tardiness may not be a punishable offense, but that's not to say it is ever justified. As Berbiglia says, late people try to rebrand by saying, I'm fashionably late, which is, to me, like saying, I'm stylishly racist. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. And then Sam pivots here, I think rightly so. He says, as much as we might be obsessed with timeliness, Jesus showed a shocking disregard for our veneration of Father Time. To him, it was impossible to be too late. To him, the laborers who show up later still paid the same as the early risers. The thief who repents too late to save himself will still see paradise. And as Jesus was fond of saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. And for his part, Jesus repeatedly refused to be subjected to time. In fact, it's more the other way around. He mysteriously delays his ministry until he turns 30, an age that could be considered past one's prime. And once his ministry begins, he paces himself. He's not a slave to routine, nor does he bother to keep a calendar. He simply goes where the Spirit leads, always willing to drop what he's doing for the sake of someone else. Likewise, he expects others to do the same for him. Follow me, he says, without slowing his pace. From a worldly perspective, Jesus is hardly ever on schedule. Not once is he ever early. I love this. I mean, I love it because I'm always late. Like, my kids know that about me. I'm also in one of these marriages where Josh is always on time and I'm always late. And in Houston, everyone was always a little late. And in Nashville, everyone is on time. People were late in Houston? I mean, that was we not were, my experience. We were Houston. at different churches. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I would say that, like, here it's been interesting. Like, people are much more on time. And so, I'm trying to adjust to that, but I loved all the examples biblically that he gave. The one that like immediately popped into my head, of course, is Lazarus, Mm. who like Jesus literally waited till he was dead, right? He was, he was that late before, before he raised him. So yeah, this is, it's, it is an interesting thing because it's like a thing in our marriage. Even my kids will be like, oh, mom's always late. Like they just know like, I'm not late to pick them up because I, I never want them to have that feeling. But, like, you're going to be a little late for soccer. Like, this past weekend, Annie had a um, cross-country meet. And, y'all, she waited till after she finished to throw up all over herself. I was so proud of her. Oh. And, no, <laughs> all over her shoes. And then we went and got Sonic. <laughs> but, anyway, I literally had to, like, pull up to the track and be like, get out, get out, get out. Like, I mean, my kids do live that life with me a little bit, so. RJ, are you late or are you on no, time? I, I, I feel like you're very on time. I'm pretty prompt. I mean, yeah. but I'm, in some ways I'm, in some ways I'm not. Meetings, I really want to be there on time. I want to be there early. But when it comes to accomplishing tasks, mm-hmm. I can tend to procrastinate a little bit, which I think is fed by my perfectionism, right? I'm always looking for like the perfect solution. So that rather than just getting it done, it has to be done in like the best possible way it can, which means I yeah. end up waiting. But at the same time, what I find in retrospect is that oftentimes things that I feel like I'm falling behind, I feel like I'm procrastinating, I feel like I'm late, they end up coming together in kind of perfect timing, you know? Yeah. And, and actually, and I can say you are one example, which, you know, we, we can cut this, but I've been stressing all summer about these two 
women's retreats we're supposed to have at Holy Trinity in November and January. And it's sort of been my task to find the speakers. And I'm like, who am I going to find? Who am I going to find? And then like a few days ago, I don't know, in the evening, I texted you and said, hey, you want to come talk? And you said, I'd love to. And then you recommended someone else. And I said, hey, you want to come talk? And she said, I'd love to, <laughs> you know? And so That's it's like awesome. things, things I've been stressing out about for months and months. I just took two texts and I would say in God's timing, right? Because if yeah. I texted you two months ago, you probably would have been like, I have absolutely no idea what is right. going on in my life. Right. So it just happened to be that I that God moved me to shoot those texts and ask those questions at the time they were meant to be done. Mm. And, and I, find- I, was, I was in the midst of existential crisis about how I have no purpose right now. So Who am like, I? What am I doing? Where am I? Perfect. What am I so doing? I reached I'm out like, to you. Yes, and, yes exactly. <laughs> so I do get those helpful reminders that... Yeah, I may beat myself up about not doing things in a timely enough manner, but that God's not beating me up and that things seem to get done when they're supposed to get done. And maybe I should just chill a little bit and enjoy my life and not be so, not feel constantly like I'm behind the eight ball. And then I could have a, enjoy a staycation. Yeah. You know, then maybe that's I could it. just, you know, stay at home and enjoy that's my life. Yeah. Do you guys think I'm on time or late? Ooh, I feel like you're late. I feel like you're on time. I am usually about five minutes late. I'm yeah, usually same. Okay. Yes, same. Yes. And, and like, honestly, it, yeah. it's one thing. You guys are sinners. Well, no, we're in, no, 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 no. We're, well, I don't know. Dave is sort of messing with us right now, but Enneagram threes. I mean, if there's Uh-oh, a. Oh, here we go. If there's a, the whole world revolves around me type, mm-hmm. it's us. Sarah, I'm an Enneagram Four. I think we, we're. I've just discovered it definitively in all of the worst ways. I'm an Enneagram Four with a three wing. So. What am I again, Sarah? What am I? <laughs> I feel am like I you're a six. Okay. Yeah. I feel like you're the worst. Worst one. The, <laughs> whatever's the, the worst, worst one. one. <laughs> whatever the worst number is. I remember unpacking it with a therapist a long time ago because it was driving my the person I was working for absolutely crazy. And for me, it really came down to wanting to pack as much into my time as humanly possible. And for that, re- and, and it was, it was actually a, a neurotic justification thing. Like I had to get a, a, so much done. If I mm-hmm. w- to waste time to me felt mm-hmm. sinful. It felt mm-hmm. that felt like an affront to almost to God, to to the world, to the life. And that's a really, I mean, I, that's not a very good way to live. It's a terrible way to live, in fact, But because um, you start to sort of vilify rest and all this stuff. But for me, it kind of took untangling and say, you know, this is why I continue to show up late because I'm trying to, I'm, I'm so enslaved to my to-do list or some internal tally of productivity that I have to kind of like you to take it out and look at it. And and then it does help, I think, being married to someone who has to suffer your lateness all the time. And I actually married someone who's a little later than I am. But so I think when, when people invite us to places, I think it's at the point where they tell us to come 30 minutes earlier than than they want us to be there. Like, than everyone think, else at the party. I'm pretty sure. You know? And that's yeah. a different type of narcissism, right? I mean, have the whole world <laughs> playing around you. Um but and now I also feel, Sarah, with, with you, that my kids, there's one of my children, nothing is worse than showing up late because he, oh, yeah. it drags, it draws attention to him. Yes. And oh. for a, a one doesn't care at all. One doesn't want to be, us to be picked up late, but you know, it's just like this cardinal sin. So it's, uh, the relationship we have with time is pretty complicated, actually. And I, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is really true. Like once you have kids, like 
it does because they know they're always late, you know, and they and you, then they'll tell you and you're like, oh, my God, we are always late. Like, I've got to get this together. You know, we're always late for church. Always. At least five minutes. Yeah. And I used to tell myself that was like our ministry of presence because <laughs> <laughs> other people would show up late and be like, oh, the priest family's late. But one thing I've observed in myself that I hate to admit is that, and part of it is right, like we're at a new church. And so I kind of feeling worshipful is hard because I can feel more people sort of looking at me and being aware that I'm there. And, you know, it, it's just, we haven't been there 10 years. We were Holy Spirit for 10 years. And so then, then it's like the anxiety of being late and trying to get there coupled with that anxiety. It probably takes me 25 minutes to actually settle into worship. So I, I mean, I hate to admit that, but I am trying to like actually do better about that one thing. We're still going to be late for cross country, but I, you know, yeah. church I'm trying. So it's good. I mean, I can, I'm happy to use Jesus as my justification for being late. I mean, I, I think it's a, yeah. it's a th- thank you, Lord, that you did not keep a schedule because that's yeah. the, about the only thing well, making me feel. He's like. certainly taking his time coming back. That's true. I mean, my that's God, true. would you hurry it up already, please? please? Things are going please. to hell down here Quick. and we need you to return post haste. I do remember have, going through a tough time and waiting for something to crack and someone saying God never shows up early and thinking like, Ooh. that's actually very profound statement. Um, yes. And it can be of help to the person in the crisis. It, it may just be a retrospective thing, but there is something that jives with Scripture, certainly, of the way Jesus operated, but God never shows up early is also is a, is just a, a different formulation of saying he never shows up late. But we want him to be early, don't we? Well, and also the demand. Like, you yeah. better be on time, because yeah. the world, because things are, because I'm important, I have yeah. things to do, you better be on time, you know, you're, you're not that important. My yeah. schedule is very important. What I'm trying to accomplish is important. Yeah. But yeah, probably letting go of that a little bit is, is a sign of sanctification. Hmm. Well, you could say it seems like people are a little happier in the countries where the where the trains run a little late. I just could say yes. that that's maybe a little late. I, I have yeah. I have traveled yeah. enough to experience that tra- aspect of life. You know, the the difference yeah. between Italy and uh, Germany. But I do I do find, for example, in a church service when I don't know when it's going to end, I get anxious. Like I, oh, it, yeah. the fact oh, that I can rely yeah. and and it's very important to the rector at our church that things end about you know yes. you know ten oh five at the latest, yeah. so that people can rely on that and they can actually relax enough to worship. Yes. And I think it's that there's, appropriate. there's truth to that. And then, but then you go to some other churches where it's just like, we're going to be here till the spirit leads. And you're like, for, for me, that's, I, I can kind of appreciate it. an hour. I can appreciate it academically, but in, per, in, in, in person, I, I kind of need to know. Well, speaking of slowing down, let's talk about, there's a long, a long read in the Atlantic this month by David Brooks called The New Old Age. And he's profiling the rise in post-career programs, like people who retire around age six and they go to like Stanford and Harvard and Notre Dame. And there's there's actually, these are becoming more and more popular. Right now, it's sort of for, you know, CEOs trying to figure out their next chapter. But he's right to say, I think that we're, we're seeing an emerging new category of people. He writes, the idea of adolescence, as we now understand it, emerged over the course of the first half of the 20th century. In the 21st century, another new phase is developing between the career phase of life and uh, senescence. People are living longer lives. If you are 60 right now, you have roughly a 50% chance of reaching 90. In other words, if you retire in your early to mid-60s, you can expect to have another 20 years before your mind and body begin their steepest decline. We don't yet have a good name for this life stage. Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, a notable scholar in this area, calls it the third chapter. 
as I think my father calls it. I prefer the encore years. For many, it's a delightful and rewarding phase, but the transition into it can be rocky. For the participants in these programs that he talks to, who are largely upper middle class and well-educated, their careers have defined their identities. Their sense of significance derived from their professional achievements. What happens when all that goes away? One senior executive told me that he fears two things in life, retirement and death, and that he fears retirement more. The loss that comes with retirement can be brutal. Some highly successful people mourn the life that gave them meaning and made them the center of the room. They report feeling hollow, disoriented, empty. One 70-year-old told me that when she retired, she learned she's bad at predicting what will make her happy. Many of the activities she'd planned to pursue turned out to be dull or unfulfilling. He goes on to say, at an age when you think they'd be old enough to know the answers, these are people who find themselves thrown back into the fundamental questions of who am I, what's my purpose, what do I really want, do I really matter? And again, these are lessons of the super elite, but that do apply more broadly. Since the dawn of the modern age, people have been complaining about the hollowness of the rat race, but nobody ever does anything about it. If these post-professional programs can help older people figure out what a fulfilling life looks like when work and career are no longer in the center, then maybe they'll have some lessons for the rest of us. The emergence of a cohort of people who are still vital and energetic, but who are living by a different set of values, creating a different conception of the good life, might help the broader culture achieve a values reset. Most revolutions come from the young. Is it possible that the one we need now will be driven by the old? I'll stop there. I'll keep reading in a second. But are you guys, I'm, I'm seeing this for certain. And I think it is a very interesting emerging trend, especially if you, you know, people are simply living longer. I'm fascinated by Brooks's sort of take on it because he, he says that you have people um, who are basically having panic attacks, asking the sort of questions of the inner life that they realize they've been sort of avoiding through their high functioning career that we sort of, I, I, you can use that as a straw man in certain like sermons or, you know, talks about the religious life, but uh, he's actually talking to a cohort of people for whom that's proven to be very much true. Veins popping out of their head because they don't want to think about who they really are or what they really want in life if their career is not an option. Yeah. Or they just have a heart attack or become an alcoholic. Mm. Yeah. Which I've seen over multiple and times. Over. With, yeah. yeah. Over yeah. and over. Yeah. I sort of am just relating to this very deeply because I'm in a place where I don't know what's next and I'm trying to figure it out and I'm looking at programs that are different and I don't know that I'm going to end up, you know, the opportunities for sort of ministry that's not running a church are pretty small here compared to where we were. And so, you know, I, I know I mentioned education. I'm, well, you know, the last time we talked, I'm still sort of exploring what that means. And I know the Barbie movie was unexpectedly political, but I, for, for a lot of people, it was not for me. I loved it. But the thing, all of the sort of heavy lessons in it aside, the thing that most struck me and was most moving to me and literally had me on the edge of the seat in that movie was when Barbie was like, she had decided she was going to be a human being and the people that she's living with are so like excited for her and they like take her to, um, Oh, have you not seen it? RJ? I haven't seen it yet. That's okay. You should see it. It's wonderful. I know I'm dying to see so it. I just, yeah, uh, that's on you, yet. bro. It's been out. I know. But we're wearing but, pink by the way, which there you go. Uh, yeah. But uh, with uh, Dolly. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, 
pink she's, Dolly sweatshirt. She's with okay. these people, and they're all like, we're so excited for you today. This is going to be so great. We're so excited for you today. And it's this real sense of, like, Barbie's going to find her purpose. And when I tell you that I was on the edge of my seat, like, whatever Barbie does, I'll, I'll just do that. Mm-hmm. Like, that sounds good. You know, because I'm just like... I'm in a place where it's like the world is so open and also I'm 40 and what does that mean? And how does it mean to function? You know, it's Mm. just crazy. And I know I, you know, I need work for my mental health, you know, above all. Um, So then they drop her off at the gynecologist office and I'm like, (laughs) for crying out loud. That's not helpful. Yeah, but that you was know? a I mean, brilliant I final message. line. It was a brilliant final uh, line. That was incredible. You just really ruined it for some people. Though, but uh, that's- you guys should no. I did not ruin it for anybody. That is your responsibility. It's been out for way too long. So, RJ, what were you about to say? I well, first I was going to say just how grateful I am for all the amazing retired people uh, in my church. Yeah, who are just so gifted and talented and lovely and diligent and I just I just cannot imagine you know I'm sure Sarah you feel the same way like the church would be a vastly different place if it weren't for people who have the time and resources to just serve and do it joyfully and to love others and like it's unbelievable I do think you know Jamie and I are definitely in a phase of our life where we you know we've got two kids in college this year and we have things to pay for and it does kind of feel I don't know it's the rat race it's just like the holding on mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, but we are going to get to the place where our kids are going to be out of college. And someday Marshall's going to go to college. I mean, so, <laughs> maybe before Jesus comes back, but maybe not. Uh, it's going to be a while. And we were even talking last night, like one of the nice things about our profession is that you, when you retire, you actually can do some ministry still, but not in a way that carries with it the level of responsibility and just thinking and dreaming, like what might we do in 15 or 20 years? And, mm. you know, it's kind of exciting to to think about, um, but yeah, needing to have something to do because I have, I honestly have seen that guys who just like worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and then stopped working and sort of had a crisis, Yeah, you know, um, like what, what do I do? What do I do next? And they got, you have to replace that kind of dopamine hit somehow or just collapse. Uh, well, what? so yeah, I think it's really, I think it's encouraging. And I think it's also, this article might be something we talk about in our church because I feel like it's happening and. Yeah, people are always like, I mean, an older man in ministry, that I, Peter Moore, who I knew, who was the dean of my seminary for a while, used to talk about moving from success to significance. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a trite way of putting it. But there's some truth to that, right? And, and, and well, I don't but know. This is, what are you going to well, say? No, it, it gets really profound, this article, because the answers that these folks are coming up with are unbelievably sort of just resonant with, with frankly, the Christian life. Uh, yeah. Susan Giannino, who is the CEO of an enormous advertising firm, she uh, observes that in high-powered jobs, she took one of these courses, life is all about instrumentality and performance, about optimizing effort and delivering results. But you get to the stage beyond your work life, that mentality is not relevant. The key shift, she told me, is to go from mastery to servant. When you're in a high-powered work environment, you think of yourself as a master of performance, but to succeed in this new phase of life, she says, you have to serve. Some of these mm. programs assign Heschel's book, The Sabbath, to get people to sort of slow down, oh, that's stopping so the busyness train. One writer says, if you want to go deeper into the heart's desire, you need to create the silence to hear it. Mm. Many of the alumni do get into sort of, you know, 
programs designed to take on big social problems like school reform or homelessness. But Brooke says, I was entranced by people doing little things with great joy. Uh, One woman who had worked as a management professor at the University of Chicago for 60 years told me, I want to open a bakery. I don't want to run it. I just want to bake. Many of the students ultimately end up not missing their sparkling careers. In fact, they can't believe they allowed themselves to be stuck in those professional ruts for all those decades. Students in the middle of the program say, how did I miss this for so long? They are grieving. They are grieving when they tell him, I should have done this earlier. Now, these are not people that are, they're, they're actually choosing purpose over leisure. It's not just like relaxation. And, but Brooks concludes with, I think, what is the great indictment of this. He said, how on earth did we end up with a society in which 65-year-olds have to take courses to figure out who they are, what they really want, and what they should do next? How did we wind up with a culture in which people's veins pop out of their neck when they are forced to confront their inner lives? The answer is that we live in a culture that has become wildly imbalanced, like a bodybuilder who has pumped his right side up to excessive proportion while allowing his left side to shrivel away. Because there is a second and deeper logic to life, which is gift logic, which guides us as we form important relationships, serves those around us, and cultivate our full humanity. This is a logic of contribution, not acquisition. Surrender, not domination. It's a moral logic, not an instrumental one, and it's full of paradox. You have to give to receive. You have to lose yourself to find yourself. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. If career logic helps you conquer the world, gift logic helps you serve it. I, I love this so much. <laughs> I, I relate to this so much. I mean, I really do because I do think that anyone who's had a long career that's been their whole lives and their whole existence and how they've defined themselves, it's a death when it's over. And, you know, I've said this here before, but it's definitely something that's still with me. Like when my mom and dad died, my ambition disappeared and it has not come back. And I don't think it's going to. Mm -hmm. And so the things that are very moving to me when I think about what my work would look like, right. And, And before they died, I was really on this trajectory where it was like, I could write more books and I could hustle more and I could speak at more churches and I could, you know, do all these things. And now it's like, the things that are moving to me for work are these like quiet ways of serving mm. period. Like quite like being really present to little kids. Like I, I can't explain it. Like, you know, being a hospice chaplain, like it's these quiet, almost unseen ways of working that are like much more appealing to me than anything ever was before. That's, so. I mean, I, I honestly think, though, when you bring up the church in relation to this, because, yes, there is a side of the church that just as careerist as anything, if not more totally. so, because, not because more it's so. like kind of, it's got its own sort of pious justification mm-hmm. scheme. But there is, a, I mean, this is an opportunity, and I think you see it. You th- see people sort of in there, it's kind of sometimes joked about how many people, you know, in retirement, they want to become, become ordained. But I think this is actually a beautiful way of saying, actually, this was the most important thing all along. And how can I just serve? I don't need to be the head of something. I just want to give back in some way. And the church is a place where these questions not only can be asked, but they can be sort of, you can be given opportunity to serve in a very powerful way that's so cognizant with the, um, you know, they're so resonant with with the core faith, uh, the gospel. So I, I think it's an opportunity for the church. I think it's an opportunity that that is that um, in the past maybe I've I've I haven't valued as much as I as I could mm-hmm. because certainly the the retired people in our church are also the, some of the absolute saints. 
because you do see in when people leave their their sort of working life or that second chapter, there are those that sort of shrink and those that expand. You know, the mm-hmm. generosity, people who only become sort of fuller versions of themselves, and there's those that sort of like turn inward. You live with people long enough, you see that tendency, and I think that the service is the outward-looking thing that allows a person to kind of continue to grow. But I I would, by the way, I'm sure this is the beginning of a book for him, uh, David Brooks, but this article itself, there's so much in there, so many stories, and uh, we haven't, there's a lot of other things I haven't mentioned about it, but it is worth reading with those groups in your church, because it reframes these things as opportunities, not death sentences. And not only that, it's like almost like the most purposeful time of life in a culture that we are so full of the seculosity of career. Here you have mm-hmm. this amazing invitation to serve. I think it's beautiful. I'll be a little bit contrarian because <laughs> I'm not a nice person. Um, I hate traveling. Yep. No, I hate travel. It's the worst. I'm, I guess I'm not as surprised as David Brooks says he is that we live in a culture where 65-year-olds are asking themselves, like, what's the meaning of my life? Because maybe I'm wrong, but it would seem to me that the history of human existence, and this is still probably true for most people in most places, is that people are just holding on. They're just trying to survive. Like life is hard and you got to feed your family and stay healthy. And the whole idea of retirement, like that's a very new idea. Mm-hmm. You know, p- people in Jesus' time, I don't think they retired. I think they, they, they grew up, they got married, they had kids, they worked and they died. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's it. So I'm not surprised by that. And I guess it also does make me think sometimes I do beat myself up for not enjoying my life more. You know, I'm like, why, what is it about me that I can't just seem to enjoy my life, that I have to sort of be caring all the time and working all the time and thinking about other people all the time and just like, I love what I do, but it's exhausting, you know? And then the thought occurs to me is like, maybe that's not what this life is about, you know? Like, we don't, this is not the end. This is not the end, right? There, there is something more and, and, Maybe we all, and within reason, like I don't want to become some super pious, holier than thou, miserable Christian who hates, who hates their life and is just looking forward to heaven or something. That's not what I'm talking about. But then it all, maybe this retirement, it, they're kind of practicing for heaven a little bit, right? Isn't that going to be the whole question of heaven? Like, what are we going to do when we don't have to do anything? And that's, that's the whole question of life. And yet we're still, we are called to serve, we're called to serve and to spread the good news and to love others in Jesus' name and, and. You know, if you're finding yourself unhappy or stressed out sometimes, like, yeah, like, welcome to human existence. And there have not been that many people in the history of the world who are financially independent enough to be able to say, you know, I don't have to do anything. I can just kind of do what I want. That, that's kind of a new problem, mm. isn't it, in the history of the world? Totally. Except for, totally. Yeah. Totally so I'm not, I'm not at all, su- I'm not at all no, surprised. Yeah, like, I feel yeah, like yeah. most people just yeah, don't have the time right. or the energy to deal with those questions right. for it didn't even really maybe occur to them. Right. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not a historian, but that's how it strikes me. Well, I was, and I'm, yeah. I was thinking about one of the huge cultural phenomenons of the summer that's not Barbie, but is also sort of slightly nostalgic in a way, is the Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, I say it's nostalgic because she's playing all the sort of songs people remember from their adolescence. She's taking mm-hmm. you on a journey. And I always, I think about... When, when it comes to Taylor, I'm always asking myself, what is it that makes her so popular? Like that, you know, there's a lot of popular people out there, a lot of gifted songwriters. What, why is it so many young women especially feel like they have this unique, deep 
connection with her. Like it's it's unbelievable. And I think to myself, she does scratch a little bit of people. You can respect her as sort of the, from like the girl boss side of things. Like she's done things her own way. She's reclaiming her sure. music. She's done this. But if you listen to her music, she's never she's never singing about career. <laughs> she's never singing. She sings about relationships and the inner life and matters of the heart. Mm-hmm. Always. I mean, almost mm-hmm. to an extent. They're her her concerts. I've watched all the footage because I happen to enjoy her music a lot too. There are these rituals of catharsis of people crying and tears, and it's all about breakups and getting together and yearning and relationships and being known and and conf- being confused and stuff like that. And I I always and how much she hates John Mayer. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of anger at, at men in those yeah. shows for sure. But yeah. the the deeper things going on in life or what, what it strikes me is that, that if, if we're not able to vent or to explore the kind of, um, the emotional, spiritual side of life, it will, it will come out to be a, you know, we'll be paying $3,000 for a nosebleed ticket so that we can have some sort of inner experience of these things that are not all politicized or telling you that the only thing that matters in life is the career you get. You guys can address your letters to Dave Ball. <laughs> a man commenting about Taylor Swift is that? No, I just I think it's interesting. Like I like I'm I'm actually not a Taylor Swift fan, but I know the lifestyle of the Swifties, and it, it's just it's an interesting thing. Like the like the idea of like catharsis and purpose, right? That people, especially young women, find in her music, and we could do a whole thing about Taylor Swift because I was fascinated to work with college students and those girls love Taylor Swift because you know I'm a little old to have sort of grown up on her music but they they all did and I think there's bigger questions you know having worked with college students that those young women are asking about relationships and marriage and planning their lives that you know is kind of a a, in some ways our day to your point and also a new crisis point right that wasn't always questions that 22 year old women ask themselves and that she kind of maybe gives away into that which is interesting yeah very interesting i mean that's what i was trying to say like there's lots of talk about how you can get the next job but there's no one there's the real stuff of life is so confusing yeah isn't it almost like when you talk about Taylor Swift conferences, and I, and I know what you mean. That we're, we're conferences. Put in a Christian. <laughs> I love that you called it a conference. Conferences. Sorry. Is, sorry. No, concerts. It's, concerts. I mean, our sorry. Day, it's literally yeah. a conference. It is. It is. Yeah. You exchange. But things, we're looking bracelets. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like what we're looking for in Christian language are like signs of the kingdom, mm. right? We, we 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 know we live in this difficult world and it's hard, and we're just looking for glimpses that there's something, and we know it, we feel it in our heart and we're seeking it out just to be reminded that, that there's more, and uh, you know, that something beyond this and yeah. whether it's, and I think, you know, and sometimes those moments happen in church. Um, you know, that, that's what you hope that, that even coming to church is a sign of the kingdom, or at least part of it is, or it happens often enough that that's what we're, we're looking for, that we're not alone. We're loved. I, but I think you're right, Dave, cathartic experience. Um, because Jesus didn't heal everybody. He performed some miracles, but the, the miracles he performed, I feel like were signs of who he was and signs that this was not all there was and that there would be full healing someday and full restoration and full love. And we don't experience that a whole lot here, but we, we, we need to know. We our, need to know day, that there's something is, more. Like if people are trying to come up with a sermon, the idea of looking for signs of the kingdom, it's just like, that's so true. Like that's, and it makes me, I just pulled this up because it's like maybe my favorite Capon quote 
it's why do we marry? Why take friends and lovers? Why give ourselves to music, painting, chemistry, or cooking? Out of simple delight and the resident goodness of creation, of course, but out of more than that too, half Earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpsed city it longs to become. Mm, mm. So good. Yeah, there's there's yeah. a uh, the uh, one of the when I was at Michigan, my friend Ryan Tinetti spoke about the feeling of being a castaway longing for home and you see you know sometimes i think we've talked about how is this behavior or phenomenon how is it a, that we, it was, if maybe it's something we find alienating we ask how is it a cry for help you could also look at these enormous cultural you know big tent moments as like how is this a cry for home how is it a cry for totally. home? how do people want home yes. and i think that's why i just always Whenever something's that big and tapping into that deep a vein, you have to, something spiritual is going on. There has to be. Absolutely. And you can either sort of judge it, or you can sort of say, well, maybe the church isn't as irrelevant as we thought. You know, maybe people are still dying for some um, hope yeah. uh, to be seen, to be, to be, to, to feel like they matter. And a tra- some sort of transcendent. I mean, a transcendent experience, but that also it is and it isn't right. It's it's beyond you, but it, but it's embedded in your heart. Mm-hmm. It's like something that you, 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 it's out there and you can't quite name it, but it's so, it's so embedded in you. And that's, that's the moment of catharsis, right? Where the abreactive moment, you're like, oh my God, like something is happening here and I feel opened up. Yeah, it's abreactive. And sort of exposed sure. and seen and loved kind of all at the same time. And this is, this is what I want. <laughs> well, let's end with a, a moment of, of supreme sort of a glimpse of the kingdom. And this is from, you know, Mockingbird, our magazine, we published uh, the Mercy issue. It came out about two weeks ago. And it's, I think, the most beautiful cover we've probably ever published. Agreed. It's unbelievable. People are, are, are cutting it, yes. cutting it out and framing it. Oh, yeah. And I think it's worth that. But and there's all, all these stories of mercy in there. It's just phenomenal. If you're not if you're not subscribed, you really it's it's it, I, you should be. But there's there's a, there's a testimony in there by an article by a woman named Diane Collard. It's called "When the Words Become True." Now Diane is a was a woman who she and her husband were missionaries in Europe, and they received word that their son had died. In fact, that he'd been killed. He'd been murdered, and he'd been murdered by he was trying to help a coworker who and this coworker's husband thought that they were having an affair, and there was oh a whole it was a whole thing, and it, it was proven he was just. As when the truth finally came out, it just Tim was his name. Tim was a friend with a listening ear at the wrong place and at the wrong time. He was killed in a gruesome manner. You can read about it. It's on the website now, as well as in the magazine. She writes this as her as a mother. She said, "Of course, all murder is senseless, but the murder of my dear son was absolutely without any justification." The following months of grief, the waves of pain, were accompanied by perennial questions that demanded answers. Why did God allow this to happen? Where is the hope we need to go on living? Is God good? Today, I can unequivocally declare, yes, God is good, even in the midst of a life that is unfair. I've surrendered the question of why to a new question. God, what can you do to both glorify yourself and to heal others through this horrible situation? Yet in those first weeks following Tim's death, when the despair of grief overwhelmed me, I knew that if I did not have God's care, compassion, and strength, I would not survive. I could not go on living. There was a stark realization that without God, I could not handle the grief. And the one question that haunted me was, could God really expect me to forgive and to show mercy to the murderer of my child? She says, as a young girl, I had trusted in Christ as my Savior and knew that God had forgiven me, that I was completely accepted as a child of God and did not have to earn his love. I learned of the depths of God's mercy as I read in the scriptures about Christ hanging on a cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And I had experienced that mercy when I embraced his forgiveness for myself. And still, how could I forgive this man who had brutally taken my son and hurt my family so deeply? For me, and she goes through the scriptures surrounding it, and she, she sort of comes to the conclusion that something about she wants to want to forgive or to show mercy to this man as a matter of her, her faith in a forgiving God. She said, the most powerful aspect of forgiveness was the realization that I must choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to live with the consequences of another person's sin. This is what Christ did for me on the cross. It is what God teaches me to do towards others. It is forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven me. This was the deep expression of mercy that is the characteristic of life in God's kingdom. Over time, God showed me how simple acts of forgiveness would bless this man and would increase my freedom from anger and bitterness. I realized the murderer and I were both on a pilgrimage of mercy. The initial act of forgiveness was to pray for my son's murderer by name. I'd never uttered his name because he had become a monster in my mind. But when I started praying for Mike, he became a man, one whom God loved and for whom Christ died. Eventually, when this man responded to God's offer of mercy and forgiveness, this man became my brother in Christ. We worked to have him released from prison. And as impossible as it sounds, I can honestly say, I love the murderer of my child. This is only through the mercy and love of God. I truly wonder if I could have ever understood and delighted in God's mercy for me without experiencing what it took for me to forgive the killer of my child. I am far more aware of the cost of God's forgiveness and his love for me now that I have learned to express mercy and as a result have been blessed with love, grace, and freedom. It was not a lesson I would have chosen, but I am so grateful for what God has taught me. So, I mean, I... crazy. This is so good. There's so many lines that that I love that I've surrendered the question of why. It's so powerful, and, like, I can totally identify with that. It does make me think, though, of, of the other stuff we've been talking about, just that, you know, we, it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about service for us, right? Because one thing that we often talk about is, is not uh, earning. I mean, is the thing we don't earn God's grace. Like it's given to us. And then there's a whole sort of way of thinking within the church. And then also within culture that it's like, you have to, you know, you have to volunteer more and you have to serve more and you have to fix societal problems. And you, you know, and you kind of feel the weight of that. And like, what I would say is you actually can't do any of that without being miserable until something's died your heart's not soft enough. Like, I, I think we, I don't, I, it's, I'm, I'm thinking this through, but it's almost like when we are younger, for example, when I was in seminary and there was such a, 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 a clarion call of like, the only way to be a Christian, the only way to be a minister is to, you know, have an urban garden and to like fix the issue of like the medical system, you know, right? And I was like 25 and pregnant with my first kid and was like, take a day off. And it, what it didn't, you know, it didn't work for me. Right. It didn't make, it doesn't make sense actually. Cause we're just in life before death. But once death happens, once someone dies in your life, once you go to prison, once you retire, it's like, there's <laughs> something about a softening that happens in your life. And then you're actually able to say, what are these small, quiet problems in my life or in culture or with people who I love that I can be attentive to. And you're not forcing yourself. It's not your will, right? It's just that death has caused a great softening. And I feel fortunate enough, and I'm so glad to hear this from her, 
to be one of those people that that's what death, I know that death doesn't do that to everyone. Right. I know that, 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 but I'd so identify with her telling you about the praying and like leaning on God in those weeks afterwards, because, you know, I just, I never knew God was that there for me. I totally relate to this. Mm, so mm. anyway, suffering is how God makes us more like Jesus. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. There's no question. Tim Keller's funeral yeah. was a couple of weeks ago. I haven't watched it. I didn't watch it. I, I know. I mean, first of all, I love the fact that it was at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cathedral. <laughs> and like how it just, that's so great. Yeah. So beautiful, right? To yeah. have a, a moment of kind of, I don't know, unity in Christ. But there was some quote, I think he actually wrote part of what was said at his funeral, which just seems like the most Tim Keller thing in the world to like write your own eulogy or whatever. But I heard he said something like, there's nothing so awful that can ever happen to you that God can't use it for good. Mm. You know, and that seems like an easy thing to say. And seems almost, it seems sort of scandalous too. It's like, what do you mean? Of course, you don't know what's happened to me. Mm-hmm. But then you see this woman, and it's tough to imagine a more awful thing than your child being senselessly murdered, and yet to see how it's been used for good in her life, in the murderer's life, now in our lives, mm-hmm. it, it's it's just how God works. It's just the craziest thing, and it's the only hope in the midst of life's uncontrollable insanity. Someone forwarded me a meme from Lady Gaga. Which I thought kind of captures a little bit of what you guys are saying. She she wrote, God said to me, I am going to show you pain. And then you were going to help other people who are in pain because you understand it. Mm. Now that is a meme, and it's I know it can sound a little trite, but you know, Diane Collard's experience is not trite. And I think it's no. the opposite of it. And uh, yeah. what yeah. a hope it gives us for those in the middle of like the, the little deaths. And the mercy that she I mean the, the title of that essay is when the words become true and the words Mm. that she'd heard her whole life about how merciful God was and what the the cross, the suffering for our sake and for the gods, for those he loves and the, the, you know, bearing the sins of the world. She, she says in other places there that these words finally became true to her in a way that she doesn't know how else they could have been. And she stopped asking the why question, as you said, Sarah. She's not, it's not a theodicy uh, essay. Right. It's simply about the right. testimonies. Like, I don't know why. This is ter- terrible. Right. There's nothing that can mitigate the horribleness of this. How, and yet, however, here I am testifying to God's mercy in a way that, I, that, that is beyond me and that I'm willing to tell the whole world about. I mean, that's, uh, to me, that's a, as hopeful and as countercultural as it gets. I, I just I just love it. I thought it was a good, good way to end our, our first episode back after hiatus. Nice and light. Nice and light. <laughs> From travel to punctuality to old age to Taylor Swift to, right. um, you know. Uh, Forgiving yourself. <laughs> Grace. Yeah. Well, you too. I guess we'll, we'll talk in a couple weeks, but... I just pray for mercy for you as the beginning of it's this year, this the tumult begins because it feels like it's it feels like that to me. It feels like a mighty storm about to roll in. But and all those of you who are listening, we're just so grateful that you continue to, for your continued interest. And uh, please be in touch with us if you have anything that uh, you want to say. Except about Taylor Swift, we will not be. Uh, we will not be responding. <laughs> no, no, no think pieces. Uh, no thank you. All right, you guys. Bye now. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.
Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>